Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Good morning. Thank you. Um, Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 through 33 in the New Testament section of our Red Bibles, beginning on page 186. As this is one of the more challenging passages, I ask especially today that you would join me in a prayer for illumination, not only for us, but also for Pastor Ray. Uh, that you would give him wisdom and guidance to, to properly uh, read us, lead us through this text, help us unpack it, and understand it. Uh, so please uh, join me in prayer. Guide us, O God, by your word and the Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Lord be with you. And before I get started, I thought it would be helpful for me to say three things to you. And the first one is that these words that we just heard read are not just for people who are married. If you read it correctly, these words are also for parents and their children in the home. It's for workers who interact with bosses. And it's also for for people who are single. And I want you to hold me to this. Let me know after the service if you agree. The second thing I want to say to you before I get started is that Judith and I love each other, but we are not perfect. And I mean that. And so it's it's so easy sometimes when we talk on topics like these to give the impression that the speaker has arrived. What we like to say is that we're fellow pilgrims. We're fellow pilgrims in the struggle of trying to um, put Jesus first in our marriage. 
And I, I can tell you that, that that's a daily struggle for us. And then the last thing I will say to all of us here today is that no matter where you are in your journey, whether you're married, you're single, you're engaged, engaged, you're thinking of ending your marriage, these are words of encouragement for all of us. You see, for the longest while, I have believed, based on, based on personal experience and the experiences of others, that the most challenging place to live the Christian life is not at work or on the mission field or even in the church, but it's, it's in the home. Because you see, in the privacy of home, the real person comes out. And in public, we have a public persona, I have one, and we do our best to show kindness and concern for others and we show deference and we show you know, these various courtesies that we extend to others in the public space. We even smile. But when we are home, we struggle to bring that public persona into the private inner sanctum of the home. And so for many of us, including myself, there is this classic Jekyll and Hyde kind of behavior going on. And of course, as Christians, we want integrity between who we are at home and who we are in the public space. And so I do want to speak to you this morning about the theme that you see on the screen, how to have a loving marriage. And someone said that getting married is easy, staying married is more difficult, and staying happily married for a lifetime would be considered among the fine arts. I've been a pastor for well over 30 years, and every year that I've ever been a pastor, I have always had the privilege of doing weddings and providing premarital counseling to couples. And there is one question that I always ask every couple that I've ever worked with, and I say to them, can you tell me why are you getting married? So again, let me be clear with you. This is over 30 years of engaging with couples. Why are you getting married? And I am yet to hear a couple say, we're getting married because we want to make each other miserable. <laughs> so I still have a few more years to go, and so maybe that unbroken string, that record is gonna be broken. And the point is that no one, no one enters into marriage with that aim. But for many couples, for a couple like myself and my wife, life happens. Life happens. And the once happy couple find themselves alienated by pain and fear and, and all kinds of negative things that can happen within uh, a couple's experience. I love what the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says that God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. That marriage did not evolve in some distant, dark, uncivilized age as a way to determine property rights. In fact, when you read the opening lines of Genesis chapter 2 or into the chapter, Genesis chapter 2, you find that God brings the man and the woman together and unites them in marriage. And so the Bible begins with a wedding. And then when you get to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, it ends with a wedding, the wedding of Christ and his church. And so what I am concluding is that marriage is God's idea. 
And that is why the Presbyterian service of worship says that marriage is instituted by God and it's regulated by his commandments. It's blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I love that idea that what God institutes, God also regulates, that God is the one who invented marriage. And so those who enter it should then make every effort to understand and submit themselves to God's purposes for marriage. And I think you'll agree with me that we already do this in different aspects of our lives. Think about the last time you bought a car, especially if that car was an internal combustion engine. You purchased a machine that has over 10,000 moving parts, unless it's a Tesla that has something like 20 moving parts. And because that car is so complex, because that car exceeds our, our creative capacity, many of us wisely pick up the owner's manual and try to follow what the manufacturer says when the car needs repair, when the oil needs to be changed, when it needs maintenance, because to ignore the manual then would be to court disaster. So before I take my seat, I just want to encourage you in your marriage. And I'll tell you from the bottom of my heart as a pastor, I was so blessed watching Gracie and her sister being baptized and seeing her mom and dad reading those scriptures. As a pastor, I believe in your marriage. I believe in every family, whether married or single, who is part of this congregation. We're gifts from God. We're gifts from God to be nurtured and treasured and so today's reading has these three wonderful, wonderful ways in which we can bless and grow a loving marriage. And, and I'll clue you that they all begin with the same letter, the same letter, the letter S. Let me tell you what that is. I believe, according to this text, that a loving marriage is spirit-filled, spirit-filled. And what does it mean to be spirit-filled? And if you have your Bibles, uh, if you would, why not open them again to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18? And we're kind of going back to some of what we read last week. It means to be spirit-filled. To be filled with God's spirit is to be directed by God. Just as Paul says, you know, look, don't, don't drink wine to the extent that you become drunk and inebriated. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk. In the same way, he says, Christians receive the Holy Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit from working in our lives from the inside out. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it is there that we receive God's power to do what seems impossible. And the reason why I mention, I start with verse 18, and I, I want you to look carefully at those verses, is because what these verses say about relationships and marriage doesn't begin with verse 22. Can you hear that? It begins in verses 18 through 20, to be filled with the Spirit. And the mark that we are filled with the Spirit is that God is in control of our lives, and it is seen in four participles four participles, and we read them last week. One, we are speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Two, we're singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. 
3, we're giving thanks to God for everything in Christ Jesus. And many of us stop there, but it goes on into verse 21 to the fourth participle, and we are subjecting ourselves, submitting ourselves to one another out of, out of, of, out of fear and reverence for the Lord. And that's when we go into the famous paragraph that has riled so many people throughout the centuries on marriage. But it starts in verse 18. The last mark of the Spirit's fullness is in this last participle, that if we're filled with the Spirit of God, we will, out of reverence to Christ, humbly submit ourselves to one another. You see, Spirit-filled people... They leave pride and self-will at the door. And it is from this spirit-empowered submission of verse 21 that Paul then moves into the practices of wives, of husbands, of children and parents and workers. And you can see it all there through chapter 5. Why be filled with the Spirit? Two reasons. Number one, no one lives with a full tank all the time. We leak. We don't live in continual unbroken love with God. It's not automatic. It's not constant. And this is why Paul starts verse 18 with this strong imperative, go on being filled with the Spirit because we all run out. We all run low. We all get empty spiritually. And so we must know where to refuel. And that's what Paul is saying. Why be spiritually filled? Because it is unreasonable. And listen, guys, I'm telling you, I had to learn this. It is unreasonable to expect that I am going to receive everything I need from my partner, my wife, my spouse. My wife doesn't have the capacity to meet all of my needs. My life is, 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 is so complex My needs are unending. There is no way one person can supply what I need. And so I must go back to this all-sufficient God who will satisfy me from my head to my toes. Only God can do that. And that's why we must be spirit-filled. And when we're spirit-filled, we bless our marriage, our relationships, by humbly submitting to each other, which is the second word of encouragement that I would want to leave with you, and that is a loving marriage practices submission. Now, some sections of Scripture resemble a minefield filled with explosives, and this feels like one of them, right? Instead of it being a treasure chest filled with truth, this section of Ephesians, yes, it does look like a minefield, Especially when you read it in the light of 21st century progressive thinking and norms, some of these ideas, and I'm just going to be honest with you, they sound old-fashioned, they sound quaint, they sound, and some of you have said it, ridiculous, or in some cases even dangerous. This whole section, though, reminds us, this is what I want you to hear. Don't read them with 21st century norms. Read them in the sense in which God gave them to the church. This section reminds us that everything we do in the Christian life needs to be governed by Christ-like behavior. So whether you're married or single, I'm just telling you, everything you do in the Christian life 
must be governed by Christ-like behavior. So it's not just married people who have a corner on humility or gentleness or patience or tolerance or love or mutual submission. So how should we read these words? First, notice, and you're not going to see it when you read it in English. I cracked open my Greek text again this week and looked at it. There is no verb in verse 22. Now, it's been inserted there for ease of reading, but there is no verb in verse 22 because the call for submission is in verse 21, and it's intended to be carried over into verse 22. So the way it reads in the Greek is, be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. What a lot of people make the mistake of doing is that they start with verse 22, and that's where they get in trouble. And these verses have been maligned, they have been rejected, they have been poorly interpreted, interpreted, and they've been misapplied. And I've been around the church long enough to see men who have abused their wives in the name of verse 22. I've been around churches enough to see where churches have manipulated women because of the wrong reading of verse 22. The submission that Paul has in mind here isn't a one-way street. It's, it, it's about two people seeking the other's best and Christ's honor. Submission, gently, when read properly, gently but firmly displaces selfishness and conceit and competition and pulling rank and dominating and dishonoring. When we hear the word submission, my brothers and sisters, don't think, don't picture a gruff commander barking at his soldiers. When you hear the word submission, don't think of that CEO on the top floor threatening to fire everyone or the king and his lowly subjects. Instead, when you hear the word submission, I want you to think of Philippians 2. I want you to picture the one perfect example, the one perfect example of humility and submission, that is our Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly submitted to God by humbling himself and dying on the cross. Here's the third thing I want to leave with you then. A loving marriage, a loving marriage, it practices submission. It is a marriage that is filled with the Holy Spirit but a loving marriage practices sacrificial love. And if you look at verse 25, you'll see it right there and onward. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't know why when people read these verses, they place so much weight on the woman's response and it's such a small section, and there's this huge section talking about the responsibility that a man has. Love your wife the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for it. You may already know this. I found this as I read William Barclay's commentary where he said that in the ancient world, Jews had a low view of women. A Jewish man gave thanks to God for three things. That he wasn't born a Gentile, that he wasn't a slave, 
and that he wasn't a woman. Barclay also says that prostitution was like water. It was everywhere. It was an essential part of Greek life. The respectable Greek woman was brought up in such a way that companionship and fellowship in marriage was, was almost non-existent. It was impossible. Here's what he says in the first century. A man found his pleasure and his friendship outside his marriage. At the time of Paul, Roman family life was wrecked. Women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. Romans, he says, didn't date their years by numbers. Women dated the years by the names of their husbands. So I want you to hear verse 25 in that context. This was a radical command for husbands to love their wives, their own wives in that culture. It was a radical thing to ask a man to do that, to be a one-woman man. It was a radical thing to ask a man and a woman to be submitted to one another and to squash all of that hierarchy. This should not surprise us, though, because the gospel of Jesus upends what society normalizes. The gospel of Jesus teaches us that indeed we're self-centered sinners. The gospel of Jesus perforates our illusions about our goodness and our superiority. But when you receive the gospel and you believe the gospel and you allow it to, to invade your home, you go from being a me first kind of person to gladly becoming a you first kind of person. And so by telling husbands to love their wives, we have, I think, the best antidote to self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is, is a havoc-wrecking problem in many marriages. It is an ever-present enemy in every marriage. It is the cancer self-centeredness at the center of why marriages are so painful. And so you go to 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul reminds us of the antidote. When he says love, he says love is patient. And love is kind. And love does not envy. And love does not boast. And love is not proud, and it's not rude, and it's not self-seeking, and it's not easily angered. And love keeps no record of wrongs. And whether you're married or single, it's for you too. So I want to close by reading an article that I read several years ago. And I finally have a chance to use this article in encouraging you, my brothers and sisters. It's written by Richard Paul Evans. It's a very moving piece where he talks about how I saved my marriage. And I think it encapsulates everything that I'm trying to say about being spirit-filled, about being humble enough to submit, and about sacrificial love. Not me first, but you first. So here's what Richard Evans wrote many years ago. He said, my oldest daughter, Jenna, recently said to me, my greatest fear as a child was that you and mom would get divorced. Then when I was 12, I decided that you fought so much that maybe it would be better if you did. And then she added with a smile, I'm glad you guys figured it out. 
You see, for years, my wife Carrie and I struggled. Looking back, I'm not exactly sure what initially drew us together, but our personalities didn't quite match up. And the longer we were married, the more extreme the differences seemed. Encountering fame and fortune didn't make our marriage any easier. In fact, it exacerbated our problems. The tension between us got so bad that going out on book tour, and this guy was a writer, a successful writer, he said going out on book tour became a relief, though it seems we always paid for it on re-entry. Our fighting became so constant that it was difficult even to imagine a peaceful relationship. We became perpetually defensive, building emotional fortresses around our hearts. We were on the edge of divorce. More than once, more than once, we discussed it. I was on a book tour when things came to a head. We had just had another big fight on the phone, and Carrie had hung up on me. I was alone, lonely, frustrated, angry. I had reached my limit, and that's when I turned to God. And I don't know if you would call it prayer. Maybe, maybe shouting at God isn't prayer. Maybe it is. But whatever I was engaged in, he said, I'll never forget it. I was standing in the shower of the Buckhead Atlanta Ritz-Carlton, yelling at God that marriage was wrong and I couldn't do it anymore. As much as I hated the idea of divorce, the pain of being together was too much. I was also too confused. I couldn't figure out why marriage with Carrie was so hard. Deep down, I knew that Carrie was a good person, and I was a good person. So why couldn't we get along? Why had I married someone so different from me? Why wouldn't she change? Finally, hoarse and broken, I sat down in the shower, and I began to cry. In the depths of my despair, powerful inspiration came to me from God. You can't change her, Rick. You can only change yourself. And at that moment, I began to pray, if I can't change her, God, then change me. I prayed late into the night. I prayed the next day on the flight home. I prayed as I walked into the door to a cold wife who barely even acknowledged me that night as we lay in our bed, inches from each other, yet miles apart, the inspiration came, and I knew what I had to do. And the next morning, I rolled over in bed next to Carrie, and I asked her, how can I make your day better? And Carrie looked at me angrily and said, what? How can I make your day better? You can't, she said. Why are you asking that? Because I mean it, I said. I just want to know, what can I do to make your day better? And she looked at me cynically. You want to do something? Go clean the kitchen. She likely expected me to get mad. Instead, I just nodded, and I said, okay. I got up, and I cleaned the kitchen. The next day, I asked her the same thing. What can I do to make your day better? Her eyes narrowed. Clean the garage. I took a deep breath. I already had a busy day, and I knew she made the request in spite. I was tempted to blow up at her. Instead, I said, okay. I got up, and for the next two hours, I cleaned the, garage, the garage, and Carrie wasn't sure what to think. The next morning came. What can I do to make your day better? Nothing, she said. You can't do anything. Please stop saying that. I'm sorry, I said but I can't. I made a commitment to myself. What can I do to make your day better? Why are you doing this? Because I care about you, and I care about our marriage. The next morning, I asked again, and the next, and the next, 
And then during the second week, a miracle occurred. As I asked the question, Carrie's eyes welled up with tears, and she broke down and began crying. And when she could speak, she said, please stop asking me that. You're not the problem. I am. I'm hard to live with. I don't know why you stay with me. I gently lifted her chin until she was looking in my eyes. It's because I love you, I said. What can I do to make your day better? I should be asking you that. You should, I said, but not now. Right now, I need to be the change. You need to know how much you mean to me. She put her head on my chest. I'm sorry that I've been so mean. I love you, I said. I love you, she replied. What can I do to make your day better? She looked at me sweetly. Can we maybe just spend some time together? I smiled. I'd like that. I continued asking that question for more than a month, and things did change. The fighting stopped. Then Carrie began asking, what do you need from me? How can I be a better wife? And the walls between us fell, and we began having meaningful discussions on what we wanted from life and how we could make each other happier. No, no, we didn't solve all our problems. I can't even say that we never fought again, but the nature of our fights changed. Not only were, were, were they becoming more and more rare, they lacked the energy they once had. We, we had deprived them of oxygen. We just didn't have it in us anymore to hurt each other. Carrie and I have now been married for more than 33 years. I not only love my wife, I like her, I like being with her, I crave her, I need her. Many of our differences have become strengths and the others don't really matter. We've learned how to take care of each other. And more importantly, we have gained the desire to do so. And then he closes by saying, marriage is hard, but so is parenthood, and so is keeping fit, and so is writing books, and so is everything else that is important and worthwhile in my life. To have a partner in life is a remarkable gift. I've also learned that the institution of marriage can help us of our most unlovable parts, help heal us of our most unlovable parts, and we all we all have unlovable parts. And through time, I've learned that our experience was an illustration of a much larger lesson about marriage. The question anyone, everyone in a committed relationship should be asking their significant other is, what can I do to make your life better today? And he says, that is love. And I would offer to you this morning that that is the spirit-filled life. That is what submission looks like. That is what sacrificial love looks like. What can I do to make your day better? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's children say,